If you guys have your Bibles on you, why don't you open up to Acts chapter 8. Going to be looking at verses 1 through 25 and the revival that took place in Samaria. If you might remember chapter 7 where you have the persecution against Stephen and his testimony before the Jewish leaders, his testimony of God's faithfulness and and with God's faithfulness, his providence throughout the centuries, despite land and place of worship, despite a law given or not given, God was always on the move and God was always moving and working for his people. And that was part of Stephen's defense. And then he, at the end of chapter seven, gives a great rebuke to the Jewish leaders and calls them stiff necked and hard of heart and always persecuting God's people. And uh, remember, they stopped their ears and gnashed at their teeth and ran at him and ended up stoning him to death. And Stephen, in the midst of that execution, looks to heaven and sees the Lord, sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And he prays that good prayer of, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Don't hold this sin against them. That was uh, right up there with Jesus's good suffering, wasn't it? Um, And we know that from the end of chapter 7, that there was a man there kind of leading the leading the execution. His name was Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And the people that were doing the stoning would lay their outer garments there at the feet of Saul. And it was essentially Saul was there giving the green light to Stephen's death. As we start our chapter here in Acts 8 verse 1, now Saul was consenting to his death. So Saul had given that green light to go, the thumbs up. Later on in uh, the book of Acts, Saul will give his testimony and he'll It'll just appear that he's been grieving his whole life about having had a a part and parcel of uh, killing Christians and killing the first martyr ever, Stephen. But with this persecution and with that martyrdom of Stephen came more great persecution. You see in verse one, at that time, a great persecution arose against the church was at Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. So it's the first time we see persecution as a word being used to describe the trials that the church would suffer then. And then even today, I hope uh, you might be subscribing to the Voice of the Martyrs magazine. I just have always subscribed to their Facebook page and had their website bookmarked, but I just subscribed to their magazine last week. And I'm going to have that sent to me so I can be like Hebrews says, always remembering the persecuted church in our prayers as if we were chained with them. And this is where we see that uh, persecution arose against the church, um, the great trials upon them. The Phillips translation, which came around World War II uh, by J.B. Phillips for a translation that was for high school kids. It's very accurate in the Greek and very easy to read. So if you're young, uh, get a Phillips translation for your reading and growing. But uh, Phillips says it, On that very day, a great storm of persecution burst upon the church in Jerusalem. Think about that this week with some of the storms we've had here in Prineville. So thankful for the rain, amen. But uh, were you around this week in a couple of different times? One of those those storm clouds would burst and just, you just see it hitting the ground and just the rain shooting off the ground. And I was talking to Wade, one of the um, irrigation board members, and he's, I think he's the chairman of the board, and he said, Rory, uh, he was at our prayer meeting as a church, and he said, be praying, because I've got a hard role and difficult meetings with these farmers, and last night at the prayer meeting, he said, 
I'm so glad we get to open up the floodgates a little bit more and give the farmers a little more water this year. And just like such an answer to prayer, whole different subject than what we're talking about here, but we've been praying right for the farmers in town. And, uh, and so, but imagine the storm cloud bursting and with it was the rain of persecution against the church. And it says at the end of verse one, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. So you notice as you read the book of Acts that with great power comes great grace. And with those two things come great persecution. And we're told by the apostle Paul, don't think it's strange when you come under persecution. It says in second Timothy three twelve that all who desire, in fact, it starts out with a yes, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer a persecution. Do you think that that applies to us today? You think that if you were to go out into the secular world and open up your mouth about the biblical principles of the gospel, that you would just be received carte de blanche with open arms and reception of heart and mind? Probably not. Probably not going to happen. Happens sometimes. Sometimes people get saved. We're going to see that in this chapter but many times and often with great grace and great power comes that great persecution. And so we ought to shore up our heart and mind to be ready for such painful things. And the early church, they then became, became scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, this is an exciting part in our text because, and maybe our slide, we can go down to that Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8. I find it one of the key verses of the book of Acts. Uh, It's there that Jesus, before he ascends up into heaven, says, uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And so really that's a key verse of the book because it tells us where the power came from for the church spread across the world and, and how we can continue such activity. But it also gives us an outline of the book of Acts. And if you were to break up the book of Acts, you'd see in chapters one through seven, you see the church in Jerusalem evangelizing, telling people about Jesus. Uh, we go from 120 disciples in chapter one to probably 30,000 Christians in Jerusalem by chapter seven. And you have the first martyr. And then you have persecution come by chapter eight. In chapters eight through 12, the church becomes scattered throughout Samaria. And so you go from Jerusalem or Judea into the northern region of Israel called Samaria. And then in chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are going to get the first missionary call to go out into the world. They're going to go to Asia Minor. And then by chapter 16, they're going to go into Europe, into Macedonia. By the end of the book, you'll see them going to Rome. And then what we don't know, uh, but by church history, Paul would go into Spain, the uttermost part of Europe. Isn't that exciting? Till he would die in Rome. So the book of Acts, are you catching it? Outlines are helpful. You might think the Bible's so big, but when you break it into its outlines format, it helps you know, like, this is the thought process of what the Lord is trying to show us. So in the midst of suffering and persecution, God is making all things work together for good because the church is beginning to 
spread. It's a good lesson for us that sometimes the Lord allows the unpleasant things and the unimaginable things to happen in our lives. Even when it's Satan working in the, you know, in the forefront, like this is satanic stuff. The Lord is over it all. He's able to, we're able to say as Joseph, what the enemy meant for wickedness, the Lord can turn and use it for good. And so the church is beginning to spread. It says, except the apostles, they were able to stay in Jerusalem. Perhaps as one writer wrote, it was just the uh, accomplices or acquaintances of Stephen who were under persecution that spread out with that. The apostles already had been persecuted, already had been beaten, already had been imprisoned, already had been threatened. It was pretty clear that the apostles weren't going to be quiet about the gospel. And so they would stay in Jerusalem, become the apostles. They would become the elders. They would become the Jerusalem council. And um, and then you have guys like Philip, who we're going to read about in a moment, who will go and spread the gospel. So uh, and then we see just a flashback to kind of the funeral procession of Stephen that devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Um, St- uh, Stephen or Stephen, or uh, if you used to watch Steve Urkel on Family Matters back in the day, you know, the handsome Steve Urkel would come out. What was his name? Stefan. Anybody? Am I the only one that used to watch Steve Urkel back in the day? You're nodding your head a little. There you go. Big nods, please. Okay. Stefan, right? Um, so here we have Stefan, the first church martyr. Okay. Uh, it comes from the Greek Stephanos, uh, which means a victor's crown. It isn't interesting. The Lord speaks of the crown that awaits those who are persecuted for his name. And Stephen or Stephan, the first martyr. Um, uh, being laid to rest by godly religious pious men, pious men who would grieve over the loss of such a good friend. But then from Stephen to Saul again, verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, uh, committing them to prison. So as for Saul, he did what the, the word havoc in the Greek is, Elimineato. Now I always go back to my big fat Greek wedding and that dad who used to put Windex on everything, you know, and what does he always say? Every good word comes from a Greek word, right? What do you think we get from Elimineato in the Greek? That's how the Lakeview guys speak Greek, by the way. Elimineato. Okay. Um, that's high school from Lakeview. That's my education, you guys. Um, the New Living Translation uses the word devastate. Saul would devastate the church in Jerusalem. New Living or New International Version, if that's what you're reading, destroy. Saul destroyed the church, or New American Standard would ravage the church. It's a verb that expresses a brutal and sadistic cruelty. And you know, we've seen plenty of movies, you know, where there's some soldiers and they're trying to break into a house and they're kicking down the door, you know, and or maybe I'm thinking Lemis. Less miserables, you know, Les Mis, you know, and is it, is Jean Valjean the good guy? What's the cop's name? Anybody remember that's, huh? You know, it. it's on the tip of your tongue. Oh, you know, it. uh, it's not Jean Valjean, I don't think, but anyways, you know, he's just, he's just got a mission, right? He's following this guy around trying to arrest him. And that's Saul. He's on a mission. He's like a wolf on the hunt. We'll see more of that in chapter nine, going to every house, dragging people, men, women, doesn't matter. He's committing them to prison. Listen to what Paul would say of himself. His name's Saul here. His new Christian name, the Lord's going to give him is Paul. 
Uh, but first Corinthians 15, nine, he just humbly and would always grieve of what he did to Christians. And he says, I'm the least of the apostles whom not even worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God or Galatians 1:13. for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Or Philippians, when he spoke of how he, how religious he was. And if anyone had a chance to get into heaven because of religion alone, that was the guy. And he would say, it's not about religion, it's about God's grace. And, and he would say, how zealous are you? I'm more zealous concerning zeal. I persecuted the church. That's how zealous I was. In 1 Timothy uh, 1, Paul says, I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's enabled me because he counted me faithful and he put me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And so just as what did Stephen pray over those that killed him and the one standing there watching the clothes? What did Stephen pray as he was dying? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand. And what does Paul say? I didn't know. I didn't know I was ignorant and I was walking in unbelief and, and he believed he was doing God a favor, just like Jesus said they would in John 16 too. Uh, it says that they will put you out of the synagogue. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he's doing and offering God a service. And Saul at the time, he was like, I'm on the right track. I'm the, I'm doing God a favor. And so he wreaks havoc upon the church in Jerusalem. So persecution is happening, you guys. In verse four, therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And essentially what you have in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts is a giant bonfire that's lit, a flame burning for Jesus, lit and lighting the whole world, uh, especially that Jerusalem area. And what did the enemy try to do to extinguish this bonfire? They tried to kick it out. And everyone knows you don't kick out a fire. You don't kick out your campfire. That just does what to the fire? Just spreads the ember, right? It moves the sparks around. And that's essentially what we see happening. We see those embers spread up into northern Israel by the Sea of Galilee, the area of the Samaritans. Stephen's martyrdom led to persecution. The persecution led to dispersion. And the dispersion now results in widespread evangelism by amateur missionaries. But that's always been the case. The Bible shows it and experience uh, proves it. Uh, Tertullian was a church historian that defiantly addressed the rulers of the Roman Empire. And he cried out this famous phrase, kill us, torture us, condemn us grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed of the church is the blood of Christians. The seed of the church is the blood of Christians. You know, the economy of the Lord is always different than the economy of the world. You know, the world says that if you want to be great in the world, then you need to put others down and seek me first. Me, me, me. It's about me. And Jesus says, if you want to be great, be the other person's servant. Put other people's first. You want to be blessed? Bless others. Give of your possessions. You want to be blessed? Be a servant. Lay your life down for others. 
Uh, you want to advance the kingdom of God? Then allow persecution. Allow yourself to be martyred. Step out in faith and put yourself out there for me. There was a man named Bishop Festa Kevinger. And in 1979, on the second anniversary of the martyrdom of a Ugandan archbishop, he wrote, without bleeding, the church fails to bless. Something in the economy of God that the more persecution that happens against Christian, the more people become Christians. That's just the exact opposite of what we pray. Lord, keep us safe. Lord, just shut our adversaries' mouths. Just keep them away. Just don't let there be any... Like, I want to tell people about Jesus, but just let it be people with smiles on their faces and they'll bake me cookies after I get to tell them about the good things of Jesus, you know. And, or as uh, Justin Martyr writes, no one makes us afraid or leads us into captivity as we've set our faith on Jesus. For that we are beheaded and crucified and exposed to beasts and chains and fire and all other forms of torture. It's plain that we do not forsake the confession of our faith. But the more things of this kind which happen to us, the more are there others who become believers through the name of Jesus. The more things that happen to us of this kind, the more are there that become believers. Isn't that incredible? St. Jerome said, the church of Christ has been founded by shedding its own blood, not that of others. By enduring outrage, not inflicting it. Persecutions have made it grow. Martyrdoms have crowned it. Bengal said that the wind that came through persecution increased the flame of the church. That's what happens here. And so in verse five, we see, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. So just as Jesus said, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you're going to go from Jerusalem and Judea, then to Samaria. We have Jesus's prophecy fulfilled. Here goes Philip into the area of Samaria. And every time Philip would open up his mouth, he would talk about Jesus. What was his message? He preached Christ to them. So often the church wants to go out into the world and just speak about the felt needs of people. Social justice. If we could just wave the banner of social justice, then that will cause God's kingdom to advance. Guys, preach the gospel. Preach Jesus. Wherever Jesus goes, wherever the gospel goes, the issues of social justice are addressed. Liberty, freedom, equality. These are things that the Lord is about and they are things that are personified and epitomized in Jesus Christ and what he does through the gospel. Philip, open up his mouth about Jesus. By chapter 21, he has the nickname in verse 8 of Philip the Evangelist. Philip the Evangelist. I love the nicknames that people get in, uh, in the Bible. You know, you've got Barnabas, the son of encouragement. You know, you've got Doubting Thomas, you know, or Simon the twin, you know. And you've got uh, here Philip the Evangelist. I wonder, do you have a nickname among your Christian friends and among the church. Hang out around here very long. You start getting nicknames. The generous, you know, the encouragers, you know, the, the complainer. No, I'm just kidding. You know, like the one who's always sending you the angry phone call, you know, or whatever. It's like, ah, oh, them again. Isn't that great? You know, uh, but no, it's, it's wonderful things. You know, the more we're together as a family, we do get those nicknames. And here he's Philip the Evangelist. But John Stott said, there can be no evangelism without an evangel. 
Do you guys even, do you know, are you familiar with evangel or evangelism? It comes from the Greek word, put the Windex on, and it's going to sound funny. It's E and then a U that looks like a V. U, U, U Evangelion. Can you guys say that? U, U Evangelion. Okay. And it speaks of the good news from the battlefield. I like that bit of a military history buff myself, you know, and I appreciate that when the battle is raging on the front lines and then the victory happens, you have the runner, the courier, the one on horseback or in the Jeep that's sent back, back to the first aid stations, back to the, back to the, uh, the, the generals, back to the, the food and all of that. And they ride back and they, we've won, we've won. We're moving forward. You know, we've won the victory. It's the good news of the herald, the good news of the battlefield. And that's what we do as we share the gospel. There can be no evangelization without the evangel. And what is it? What is our message? It is the gospel. It's New Testament preaching. Colossians 1.28, Paul says, him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man. What do we talk about? What do we preach? We're preaching Jesus. Let the name Jesus. Didn't we just sing that song? What a beautiful name it is. What a powerful name it is. What a wonderful name it is. The name of Jesus. As Philippians says, it's the name above every other name. It's the name which knees on heaven and earth and down under, you know, all those down under knees, they're going to bow before the Lord Jesus and declare him to be Lord. The name of Jesus, just let it flow from your mouth. The name of Jesus. Now we have the message. It's the gospel. We have the man, Philip, the evangelist. Now we have the place. Okay. We have the place on the map. It's called Samaria. Now to know Samaria and to get what What's so important about this? You got to kind of be going back in your Bibles and be reading first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles. Okay. You want to be reading about Israel's history. And as you look at the Kings that Israel had, you see a moment where so much idolatry began to penetrate the Kings. They weren't worshiping God anymore. They've worshiped idols, child sacrifice, sexual immorality, all sorts of images and idols that they had set up, uh, person sacrifice. One of the Kings would sacrifice his own son to false gods. And, uh, and during that time, Israel had a civil war and split in half Solomon's son, Rehoboam would be the king of the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And then a warrior that would rise up would become the king of the north, Jeroboam. And it's kind of easy if you think of it like I do. Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the Aboam brothers, okay? Um, And so you've got these two kings over these two nations. and, And you've got Judah down in the bottom that would worship in Jerusalem. That's where they had the temple built. That's where they worshiped. Sometimes you'd get a good king that would tear down all the false gods and all the idols. But for the most part, they'd always come back and they'd always worship the idolatry. In the north with Jeroboam, in the area of uh, the Dan area, uh, you would have um, Gerizim, Mount Gerizim. And they would set up a temple up there. Jeroboam would actually erect two golden calves to help facilitate their worship. Anybody think that maybe there should have been a red flag on that one? Like last time we did the golden calf thing. What happened? You know, so Jeroboam, right? 
sets up this place of worship. And then for, you know, a couple hundred years, 14 kings each, if I remember correctly, each side would have prophets would rise up. And these prophets would say, repent from your sins, repent from your idolatry, turn to the Lord, trust the Lord. And, uh, and these kings would just reject and kill and imprison the prophets. And so they would prophesy over them that they would be um, eliminated or taken captive. And so in about 786 BC, if my timeline's correct in my brain, Assyria um, came over and conquered Israel. And, and then a hundred years later, Babylon came over and conquered Judah. Now Babylon, when they took Judah, they took all of Judah away. Okay. And after about 70 years, they allowed Judeans to come back. The Persians now ruled over Babylon. The Persians would allow uh, Judah to come back and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, rebuild the temple of Jerusalem, and the nation of Israel became is Israel again. Although it was under Grecian rule, it would be under Roman rule. And until now, May 14th, 1948, it wasn't ever just Israel again. But now it's Israel again. Great prophetic stuff. I don't have time to get into that. You're like, I don't even know where you're going with any of this. Frankly, I don't really either. You know, um, I feel like I should pull down like a little map right here and be like, okay. Uh, now that Northern, the Northern 10 tribes of Israel, when they were captured by Assyria, Assyria did something different, quite ingenious. Okay. They didn't just take people away. They brought their people in. Okay. Their people would come in and they would kind of intermarry with the Israelis and then they began to teach them how to worship their gods. And essentially they, through a mixture and through dilution, they eliminated Israel and essentially made Israel Assyrian. Okay. And so Israel began to worship their gods and became so wicked that lions would come out of the, out of the wilderness and kill the Assyrians. Okay. And the king of Assyria said, we got to bring one of them um, Yahweh-fearing prophets up to tell us how to worship the Yahweh. And so a prophet would come and kind of teach them how to worship Yahweh. And so then there became more of a mixture of like, we'll worship a little bit of God and we'll worship a little bit of all their gods. And so it was more of the same like idolatry stuff going on. When Judah came back in, in the south and rebuilt Jerusalem, Samaria, if you read the book of Nehemiah, they came down and they said, hey, can we guys, remember Sanballat from Nehemiah and Men's Muster 2019 with Luke Frechette? Sanballat came in as an Assyrian and he was like, hey, can we help you guys rebuild the wall? And uh, Nehemiah was like, no way, no way, Jose, get out of here. We don't need your help. You betrayer, you worshiper of other gods. And so that became more friction with the Samaritans or the Assyrians, the guys up north, the Israelis. And then some of the builders would take some of these Samaritans as wives. And later on, the prophet Ezra would say, you need to divorce your wives. You should have never married a non-believer. That added more friction. And so for the history of Israel and Judah up through the time of Jesus, the Samaritans were a hated people by the Jews. Okay. The Samaritans seemed to always want to come down when things were good and be buddy, buddy. But when things were bad, they'd say, we're not, we don't even know you. We're a Syrian. 
So in John chapter four, when Jesus goes into Samaria and talks to the woman at the well, it's a big deal that he's talking to a Samaritan and offering her living water that she would never thirst again. It's a big deal that by the end of chapter four, she goes into her village and tells the people all the things that Jesus knows, all the things that she's ever said and done. And that that whole village comes out and believes in Jesus and becomes a follower of Jesus. That's a big deal because the Samaritans were considered not a popular word these days, half breeds as you study the history. They were considered a popular word these days, hybrids. Okay. Uh, hybrid card. Okay. Uh, but the Jews hated them and they hated the Jews right back. So what would happen to get the gospel up into Samaria again, but persecution and an awesome guy named Philip guys, there were so many mixed notes on that whole story of religion and, um, and geography I hope it made a little bit of sense for you. Okay, it's a big deal though that they're going into Samaria with the gospel. Okay, verse six, and the multitude, the multitudes, the Samaritans, by the way, does it help you understand a little bit uh, the story of the good Samaritan at all? That a man is wounded on the side of the road and a Jewish priest walks by and a Levite walks by. None of those guys help him but a Samaritan walks by and helps him. Why is that such a big deal? Because normally the Samaritan wouldn't have anything to do, but what does the gospel do? It helps us to love our neighbors, even when we're different, right? Okay, back on track, verse six. We're only going through verse 25 today, guys, so just calm down. Okay, and the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles Uh, which he did for unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were, (coughs) excuse me, paralyzed and lame uh, were healed. And so, uh, you know, you watch uh, the exorcism or something like that, you know, and you get some of the Hollywood versions of a, of an exorcism and the Emily Rose character or whatever, you know, and the, the screaming and the split pea soup that tends to follow some of those things. And, uh, you know, it's not, it's not entirely wrong. When Jesus heals the demoniac, there's screeching and screaming that are going on when those demons go into the pigs. Or here, one version says, the wild shrieks would happen as many would, demons would come out of the possessed. So they're not entirely wrong. Um, but these are great signs that accompany those that go out advancing the gospel. Jesus says in his Mark version of the Great Commission in Mark 16 that here's the signs that will accompany those that follow and preach my name. They will cast out demons. So that's something to be aware of and ready for. You're going to go out and you're going to minister the gospel. You're going to be praying for deliverances uh, in people. And it often will thwart people from going on the mission field. I know people who have not signed up for mission trips because they were afraid to go to the land of Nepal where people see demons as corporate villages um, when you start hiking up into those Tibetan Buddhist Buddhist areas. But the legacy of missionaries is that, you know what, man, we got to go where the people are. They're like the little mermaid, you know, I want to be where the people are and where there's people, there's darkness. We got to go there. And the great stories of missionaries, like one of our own Oregonians from Portland, he was a wrestler. His name's Jim Elliott. And you might know him from the book, The End of the Spear or that movie or from missionary biographies, a wrestler from a Portland high school would go off and go to, uh, 
Uh, he would go off to Wheaton Bible College and become an incredible pastor and preacher. And then him and four other buddies would receive a call in their life to go down to Ecuador and minister to the Alca natives down there. And as they were planning and Nate Saint bought a Piper Cub plane to get down there into the jungle and they started prepping, uh, the leaders in Bill Elliott's life told him, you're a gifted preacher. America needs preachers. Stick around America, man. What are you doing? Uh, you're giving up an incredible future. And there's a journal entry from Bill Elliott's journal. And if you don't know the story, him and his buddies would end up getting speared through uh, with um, by the natives down in Ecuador after they'd begun a relationship with them. His wives and their wives would end up taking on that ministry and keep going in there and preaching the gospel. The whole village would get saved and be won over to Christ. And uh, it's because of hearts that aren't afraid to go into the, into the danger zone. We got here uh, his actual journal that says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So it's okay to, to go and to take those great steps of faith. Or John Patton is one of my favorite missionary stories. His ebook is free online. You got to read about John Patton from beginning to the end. It's incredible. So what was happening was there was missionary ventures going into the New Hebrides Islands over by New Zealand off the coast of Australia. And that was headhunter area, okay? Uh, and so one ship landed some missionaries there. The rowboats took them in. They offloaded their trunks and their food and all their supplies. And as the sailors were rowing the rowboats back to the ship, they watched the, the jungle erupt with headhunters who came out, speared the missionaries and began eating them in front of the sailors. So that's the good report that the sailors had as they went back to Scotland and told what happened to the, uh, to those beloved missionaries. As John Patton, John Patton heard about that and immediately his heart was like, I think I'm being called to go down there. And for a couple of years, he wrestled as if, am I just going to seek the glory of a missionary? I don't want that. Finally, he went to his pastors and leaders and he said, I'm feeling called to go to the New Hebrides. And they said, John, you'll be eaten by cannibals. To which he replied, here's the way I look at it. Either I die and the cannibals eat me or I die and the worms eat me. I'm going to be eaten nonetheless. I want to go out serving God. And so he would go incredible stories of angels and being surrounded by chiefs and warriors and angels protecting him and losing wives and losing kids. And, and by the end of his life, he was able to write in his journal, New Hebrides, one for Christ. And even to this day, the New Hebrides are Christian islands uh, that are ev evangelistic. And so uh, you have the guys like Philip the Evangelist going up to where uh, the, the lead city in Samaria was idolatrous and given over to occultic practices to where there's demon, multitudes of demon-possessed people crying out. Uh, and what happens as that takes place? Look in verse 8. There was great joy in that city. Or in the Greek, megas charis. Great joy and great grace. And there was a certain man or but there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great uh, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he'd astonished them 
with his sorceries for a long time. So our writer, Luke, kind of rewinds the story a little and says, hey, in this Samaria, there was a guy, a famous guy named Simon. And just like they would give heed to Philip in chapter 8 here, they used to all give heed to Simon. Multiple times the word heed is used there. Uh, it makes me think of heed, pants, no, you know, and uh, they give heed to Simon, uh, the sorcerer. And it's interesting. There's about seven bullet points that I marked down concerning this guy. He was a sorcerer. He was doing good work. I mean, like these guys, people were impressed with his sorceries. He claimed he was someone great. Okay. He claimed that he was someone great. The old pat himself on the back. Me thinks thou thinks too much of thyself. You know, uh, he thought he was awesome. He would tell people, I don't know if you guys have heard, but I'm a pretty big deal around here. All right. Um, those are just good people that you always want to be around. Right. Uh, but for, somehow he had a following. He was what was called uh, one translation momentous that he was, he was going to make history with who he was. Everyone was listening to him, the rich, the poor, the small, the great. Everyone was saying, this guy's a God. So that's what that's translated. This man was the power of God. Like they think that he's God. They're worshiping him. They heeded him. They astonished him with his sorceries or, his, or uh, he astonished them with the sorceries and magic arts for a long time. I was just praying over this. This section has a number of applications for us. Um, and my heart just kept coming back and I didn't mention it first service, but we, I did speak on the idolatry here. There's clearly idol issues, um, which stems from Romans one. Romans one tells us that at the heart of every sin is idolatry where we de God, God, did you know that? Look at your sin that you're struggling with or any sins and go back to the garden of Eden and you look at Eve, there struggling with the serpent and the serpent says, did God really say, cause I got a better way for you. You know why God doesn't want you to eat the forbidden fruit? Cause he knows that the minute you eat it, you're going to be like God and you're going to know everything that God knows. And so that first sin in the garden at its heart was not gluttony but idolatry. It's the same with every sin since. Does God really know what he's talking about? Because I think I know better. And so you have here either people worshiping Simon the sorcerer, saying that he's the power of God, that we can fall into that these days, and maybe the Lord would convict us where we esteem a man or a woman, a created being here, uh, as Romans 1 says, we had to exchange the God who creates for the created thing. And we all, there's pastors that we hold up to that point. Oh man, if this pastor says it, it's like the written word of God, you know? And there's politicians, you know, that we throw our red hats on. Don't we? Oh, he is just incredible. Or we burn the red hats and we vote for someone else. You know, one way or another, this guy's got to save us from this guy. And we don't trust in the Lord. Or it may be a political commentator, or it may be your therapist and what they say versus what God says. And you're going to listen to someone or exalt someone other than the Lord. It's idolatry. But something that the Lord was putting on my heart as I was praying over this was that in Simon's heart, who was his idol? 
I heard a Jesus. Excellent Sunday school answer, by the way. No, he's not there yet. Who's Simon's idol? Himself. He's saying that he's God. And you know what? That's probably that epitome of idolatry. You know, as we are in Pride Month, you know, and social media has kind of erupted and begun to vomit rainbows upon us, you know, I'll never forget in teaching Romans one and listening to John Piper ride on homosexuality and how he says that, you know, the thing with homosexuality is it's kind of like this mountain high peak of idolatry and self-worship. That it is worshiping myself so much that I must be with someone like myself. Okay? This incredible theologian and pastor, John Piper, just brought that home in a way. Can't do it for you here in this time. But but we live in an age of self-worship. My body, my choice. You tell me when Jesus ever said that. What did Jesus say? Even though he should have been the one worshipped, he's the one that laid his life down as a ransom for others so that they could be saved. One way or another. Maybe it's the vaccine, my body, my choice. Maybe it's abortion, my body, my choice. Maybe it's the way that you, you live in your home, my, my body, my choice. My house, my choice. My, 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 my. My body, my sexual preference, my heart, whatever the heart wants. Listen to your heart when it's calling to you. Don't listen to your heart. It's wicked. It's deceitful. Jeremiah says it's wicked above all things. Take your heart before the Lord and let him examine it for the word of God. And so in this area of occultic demon possession, you've got idolatry like crazy. And you're either worshiping somebody or you're worshiping yourself but the good news is here comes the evangelist with the gospel. This shows that there's someone worthy to be worshiped who will change your life and make you never want to worship anyone else. Simon, Simon, the sorcerer, he plays this extraordinary role in early Christian literature, not just in the Bible, but in early Christian historians as well. His name, uh, maybe if you're reading like King James version, Simon, the sorcerer, is Simon Magnus, It literally denotes a type of uh, demonic priest, but it came in an extended sense uh, to speak of a practice, practicer of mysterious arts and even quackery. So essentially Simon, the sorcerer was a, a quack, right? I mean, that's who we're, that's who we're reading about right here. In the middle of the second century, Justin Martyr would, who by the way, came from Samaria himself described a Samaritan named Simon who did mighty acts of magic. He was considered a God and was worshiped not only by almost all of the Samaritans, but even by some in Rome who erected a statue toward him. Towards the end of the second century, Irenaeus, the historian, represented him as a, quote, glorified man as if he was a God. So this was a... Uh, a worshiped guy who's going to come into an encounter with the Lord. Look in verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as they preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. So, uh, man, you've got 
Simon, his whole life, he was heeded by the people because of his magic arts that he would do. Then this new guy comes to town named Phil, you know, and everyone begins to heed him. Now, in an interesting turn of events, it appears that Simon the sorcerer says, well, if you can't beat him, join him, right? So he believes, he's baptized, and he's hanging out uh, with Philip. And he, he was amazed. And as you read, you read it right there. He was amazed. And wasn't it neat how he was amazed with the story of the gospel? As Peter says, the things that angels desire to look into. Oh, that God would leave his throne and rights and privileges of deity and become a man and dwell among us and live a life that we could never live in obedience that we could never obey. And he would die the death of a martyr, the just for the unjust, so that we who have sinned could be declared righteous before God because of the blood of our Savior. And Simon the sorcerer was astounded at the message of the gospel. What's he excited about? Don't worry. Pretty sure that that roof was inspected when we bought the place and it's going to stay on, okay? What was he astounded by? The the wonderful miracles and works that Philip did. So already in his conversion, there's this underlying rocky, sandy, shifty foundation of still those old habits and being impressed with those types of things. It's going to kind of come back to bite him in just a little bit. Now, verse 14, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. And so, you know, Samaria, remember the history of Samaria, the enemies of Judaism. And they were like, wait, the gospel's going up there. I gotta go see this. So they send a couple of the real big wigs up there, a couple of awesome apostles, uh, Peter and John, who, when they came down, it says in verse 15, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of of the Lord Jesus. I know what you're thinking. That's a, such a simple set of verse two verses. We should just hurry up and speed read through the rest of the section so we can get on with our Sunday afternoon. Believe it or not, those are two very difficult verses. Howard Marshall from Aberdeen University says, this is perhaps the most extraordinary verse in the book of Acts. And why would that be? Because you have a group of Samaritans who have heeded the gospel the things spoken of by Philip. They've believed the things that Philip has said. They've been baptized. And so for all we know, from what we can tell, these are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now you have the apostles come. They lay hands on these people and give them the Holy Spirit because they hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. All right. He had fallen upon none of them. This is a very difficult thing as you're studying the Holy Spirit, as you're studying soteriology, as you're studying salvation. And here's a couple perspectives and thought on the matter. Some argue that the Samaritans first stage with Philip was not a genuine conversion at all, but a spurious one. G. Campbell Morgan, incredibly well-respected preacher and theologian, interprets their having accepted the word of God in verse 14 as a merely intellectual assent, that they hadn't yet received the spirit that brings regeneration, the beginning of a new life, 
They haven't been born again yet, is what Morgan says. Professor Dunn writes that the construction used in a Greek word, pisteteo, in the dative tense, indicates intellectual assent rather than a commitment of heart. So that the two senior apostles, Dunn says, came down hot-footed from Jerusalem to remedy a situation that had gone seriously wrong somewhere. So Philip the Evangelist, great evangelist, but maybe not skilled in discipling people or something like that. So we got to get, got to get the leaders to come down. Okay. Howard Marshall though says on the whole, there's no clear evidence that people were merely superficial in their belief. When I read the text and study the text and have studied it, and I'm aware of the different positions. When I read this, I read of born again, Christians in Samaria, born again. Um, given the Holy Spirit, sealed with the spirit of promise, baptized as a sign of repentance from their sin. And perhaps, as another belief would say, the apostles had to come and the Holy Spirit hadn't come upon the Samaritans because they'd been such wicked people that they had to see it. They had to confirm that these were indeed going to be Christians and that they would lay hands on them and give them the Holy Spirit. And then now they can go back and say, okay, it's legit. They're bona fide believers. Okay. How I make sense of this, and maybe some of you guys are like, I'm neither here nor there. I don't even know what you're getting at. Here's what helps me with this. It's this phrase fallen upon. Do you see it there? For as yet the Holy Spirit had fallen upon none of them. This is the phrase that unlocks the text. Because I believe what we're reading of here is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. I believe it is a biblical thing that the moment someone believes in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes inside of them. Okay. Just like Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he looked at the disciples and he said, receive the Holy spirit. And he breathed on them. And these disciples, I believe that when Jesus says, receive the Holy spirit and breathes on them, that, that they receive the Holy spirit. And I believe that that is that in dwelling of the Holy spirit that comes upon every Christian when they believe. But then Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy spirit comes upon that there's this second work that the Holy Spirit does where he comes upon you and he fills you to overflowing continually for the purpose of being a bold and brave Christian evangelizing the world. And so what, what do we have happening here? We don't have the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit indwelling them. We have here the, the epi in the Greek or the falling upon Did you also see the phrase there? For as yet, they'd only been baptized with water in the name of Jesus Christ. Do you guys remember Jesus's words in Acts chapter one? For John truly baptized with water unto repentance, but I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and he will come upon you. So I humbly say, and I'm telling you, G. Campbell Morgan, John Stott, these guys, they're, They're smarter than me. Okay. So you got Bibles, you got the leatherback book in your hand. You guys do your own research. I'm humble in this, but I would say is how you're going to hear it preached here. 
that we're talking about the Holy Spirit who comes upon Christians and continually fills them and radically gives them charismata and spiritual gifts so that they can display Christ in the church and to the world with the gospel. I think that's what's happening here. You're going to see it again in, in uh, Acts chapter 10. You're going to see it again in Acts chapter 19. You're going to see people that like God is not in a box how the Holy Spirit comes upon people. Okay. Uh, sometimes people lay hands on people for the baptism with the Holy Spirit. You see it here. You'll see it in chapter 19. Sometimes like in Acts chapter 10, Peter is preaching to a bunch of Gentiles who've never heard about Jesus yet. And while he's in his sermon, everyone believes there's no altar call. There's no bring the worship team up so that they can do some sort of emotional song or anything like that. They're believing while Peter's preaching and the Holy Spirit falls upon them during the message and they begin to speak in tongues and prophesy. All right. And then they're baptized with water. So there's no order in the book of Acts of first you believe, then you're baptized, then someone lays hands on you, then you receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit. You won't find that order in the book of Acts. You see that we're saved because we believe in Jesus. When we believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us, changes our heart, gives us a new heart, a new mind that can know God and love God, teaches us to obey God to comprehend the scriptures. And then sometimes at the same time, sometimes later, the Holy Spirit comes upon us and gives us power so that we will go out and open up our mouths about Jesus. I know that's a bit much. Maybe half of you in the room are like, totally get it. Others are like, totally disagree. Others are like, totally don't even know what you're talking about. Okay, all right, okay. Okay, we're moving right along. Gonna finish up very quickly. In fact, worship team, come on up. Okay, that's always the encouraging moment in the sermon when you're like, he really might end this thing. It really might happen. Um, and uh, so we have uh, them receive the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, and when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So a little bit of Simon's past comes up because, you know, you guys have got that magic kit from the hobby store, you know, and, you know, you can, you can buy tricks from other people, you know, and that's what magicians do. They buy tricks from others. And so Simon was just thinking, this is what I always did. Maybe I can buy this power to lay the Holy Spirit on people. That'd be awesome. I'd still be popular. My name would be, you know, known on Insta Snapchat and, uh, I'd still be like the big guy around town, you know? And, uh, this is what's called, it would become known as simony. You guys heard of simony favorite game growing up? Simony says no different game. Um, ever since this day, the attempt to turn the spiritual into the commercial or to traffic the things of God, especially to purchase ecclesiastical offices has been termed simony. Just this uh, week with the high school group, we are teaching them about the canon of the scripture and how the Roman Catholics went towards um, the Bible being an authority for them but also the magisterium, which is the body of traditions that they have. And then the Pope speaking ex cathedra. And then you get into many of the things that came into Roman Catholicism. And I want to just read you this quote from, uh, from my notes this week, the age of med- medieval Catholicism became so dark that when Sergius the third became Pope in 904 to 967, he ushered in what history calls the rule of harlots during which time his mistress publicly accompanied him to the Pope's palace 
Sergios's grandson, John X, continued his legacy until he was actually killed in his bedroom while committing adultery. Next came Benedict IX, who assumed the papacy at age 12 through the act of simony, which was selling positions within the church to the highest bidder. Benedict IX became so corrupt that the citizens of Rome drove him out of the city, replacing him with Clement III, who was appointed by Henry III. Clement III was not a Roman because in the words of King Henry III, I will appoint no one from Rome because no priest can be found in this city who's free from the pollution of fornication and simony. Okay, so there was this practice of selling the papacy to the highest bidder. All right, and so it all comes from Simon here. Okay, verse 20. So Peter says to Simon, oh, you Simon. No, he says, your money perish with you. Because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. The J.B. Phillips translation written for high schoolers, remember? But Peter said to him, to hell with you and your money. That's not to be crude. That's the literal translation of the Greek. One other, to purgatory with you and your money. Verse 21 and 22 and 23. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this, your wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Or as Philip says, I see a man bitter with jealousy and bound with his own sin and bitter gall. And so Simon answers and says, pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. Do you guys notice anything in Simon's prayer there? You do the praying. I don't want the bad things to happen to me. There doesn't appear to be what 1 Corinthians calls a godly sorrow that produces repentance. Even though one of the longer translations that's not original says that he wept and cried copiously. It doesn't appear that in history that follows, Simon ever repented of this bitter gall of heart that the new guy came in and stole his Facebook channel. You know, later on, historians tell us that he would become the arch enemy of Peter. It was the two Simons pitted against each other. That he would become the leader of what was called Gnosticism of his day, which is Jehovah's Witnesses of our day. And that he would never be this follower. It's an interesting thing because he has all the characteristics of what we would have called a believer. But only the Holy Spirit knows if he actually had repented and, and been filled with the Holy Spirit and been born again. Are you the worship leader closing us out? Okay. <laughs> Whenever you're ready. Um. That was not a very confident yes. I'm not, oh, yeah, perfect. Come on in, guys. <laughs> um, and so, sadly, we see him go on to uh, become a heretic and a leader of heretics. It reminds me of my pastor when he was young. He was on staff at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, and there was this ex-Marine drill sergeant that was the assistant pastor, the crisscross of our church, you know. His name was Pastor Romaine. And, and Pastor Romain was basically my pastor's boss. And just, you know, one of those rough around the edges, drill sergeant type guys. And one day they're walking across each other at campus, you know, and Romain says, Rob, you've been reading the word to your wife? And Rob goes, oh, Pastor Romain, I've just been failing in that. And I haven't been reading the word to Susie. And I just feel like, man, I just can't find the time. And I just, 
Oh, I don't know when it's ever going to happen. Pastor Romaine, will you pray for me that I'll start reading the word? I'm not going to pray for you. You either want to do it or you don't do it, but you need to pray for yourself. And then like, like, okay then, you know? And so one man wrote, man, Simon Peter just lost what could have been a really good convert through maybe his harsh reaction to him there. Maybe, maybe not. It's kind of one of those things, right? Why don't we stand together? There's a lot of application here, you guys. Simon, the sorcerer, shows us that there can be Simons in the church. There can be Judas Iscariots in the church. There can be Ananiases and Sapphiras in the church. That it is a sobering thing that we would do what Paul says. Examine yourselves daily to see if you're of the faith. What excites you about being a Christian? Is it when you get the warm fuzzies on the back of your neck on those times that the Holy Spirit's moving in the church? But you're like not living for Jesus out there in the world? Is it, you know, because you, you found community at church like you've never found out there in the world, but yet Jesus is not the Lord of your life and you're not obeying the things that he's said? Are you a Simon? Ask yourself, ask the Lord to search your heart, as the psalmist says, and see if there be any wicked way. So Lord, we pray today in this place that if there be any Simons, anybody that just kind of poisoned by bitterness and how they've come into their relationship with you, that you would take that away. That you'd give us a godly sorrow that would pray for ourselves and confess our sin to you and ask you to change us and conform us into your image. Lord, just take us out of the place of being Simon the Sorcerer today. For those here that uh, might be like a Samaritan who is a believer and has been baptized, but they've never experienced the power of the Holy Spirit upon them. We pray today you would do a work as I stretch my hands out to these people. I pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit upon them. They would be bold and courageous. They'd be like flames going out into this town and county. May we hear stories of people leading coworkers to Jesus and teammates to Jesus and grocery cashiers to Jesus and veterinarians to Jesus mechanics to Jesus as we just have those encounters with people out in the world. We pray for the persecuted church today, God. Lord, that you would give them the grace to continue their ministry of evangelism, even in the midst of persecution, and that we too would open our mouths up when it would mean most certain confrontation, most certain antagonism, in response, we'll give you all the glory. New song that we're going to close with today. You might not totally know it, so enjoy the words and sing along when you can. And I would just first serve us so blessed by it because it just has to do with, you know, I just see you got Simon the sorcerer. Oh, Simon, you're so special. You're like God. Oh, you do all these mighty works. It's so incredible. But when the power of the gospel comes in and transforms hearts and minds and lives and works wonders... Simon the Sorcerer can't hold a candle to Jesus. Let's give him that glory as we close out today.